Welcome to Montana 3000, Tales of 15 Minutes from Now, read by the author, Sean Gallagher. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and see the website for updates on new episodes at montana3000.com. And now, your host, Sean Gallagher. Morning is my favorite time. Morning is my favorite time. Before the sleepers shrug off their dreams. Before they scrub the grit from their eyes and return to their roles. Before the world is roused back to its chaos. Breeze and birds accompany my reverie with subtle orchestration. And the sun's rising light brightens this, my thinking place, in the morning. Most days I take my toast and tea on the loggia. In fact, I sit there now. From here, I can see the whole thing unfold. The bees uncloistering to seek their pollen. The early rising cogs rolling back to their wheels. The ants emerging from holes in search of heavy things to carry and new enemies to fight. Usually, my new day thoughts self-steer and drift pleasantly about, bobbing and dipping like a leaf or a raft of dry moss riding the eddies of a gently swirling brook. I try to think on things that bring me joy. Sunrise is no time to dwell on undraped reality. There's plenty of time for that when the sun is high and the day longer aged. Invariably, as happy thoughts ensue from this pleasant place, my brother floats in, my peace-loving, my war-torn brother. Try as I might to confine my daydreams to his younger times, his salad days, I can't divorce what he was from what he has become my beautiful, broken brother. I remember once when we were kids, he defended me against a troop of punks. They were harassing me over some silly excuse. It was a lewd and unloved bunch. My brother stepped in, and I remember thinking, here comes the hammer, jerks. Prepare for your comeuppance. I knew he could take their three to his heroic one with a single stone fist. He was an invincible mountain to me. But rather than sweep clean the field, he took my hand and walked me away from battle, his back turned to the derision of those smaller souls. What are you doing? I cried. We can take them. You can take them. He just smiled. No one wins a fight, was his self-possessed reply. I was scandalized and shamed by his cowardice. Oft confused was I by his unwillingness to wield his superior strength to advance a justified end. More than once, I watched him smile down an aspirant foe, turning his squared and stone-hewn jaw away from the would-be defeated, as he was taught, as we're all taught, but seldom heed. How badly I wanted to watch him administer justice, to see him bloody his knuckles on the nose of the deserving and low-merited. I wanted to fight others with his fists. I yearned for vicarious violence, pleaded for it. But he was more monk than warrior, unrivaled in his power, unmatched in his disciplined restraint. I failed in my youthful ignorance to grasp his mastery and wisdom. I took it for weakness. On his behalf, I recklessly entreated those idols of veiled folly, the gods of war, to uncloud his clouded eyes and embrace him into their fold. And Ares and Mars and Chayu and Tohil and Odin and Anher and God upon God and all their minions too, hearing my call, abided. My brother received his order to arms on my 16th birthday. 
The war had been picking up speed and casualty numbers were increasing. There was wide speculation that another draft round was going to be needed, and sure enough, order messages started popping up across the Western territories a few weeks before my brother got his. It was a testament to the War Division's marketing acumen that things started off as popular as they did. No draft was needed for the first few years. Lines wound around the block at the Volunteer for Valor kiosks planted near schools, travel ports, and food plazas throughout the Confederation and across the protectorates. Boys and girls, in response to the government-issued goad, were eager to test their mettle, display their character, and earn their battle medallions, all while holding the moral high ground against a dead-eyed and hell-bound rival. Coupled with the sempaternal gratitude of the stay-at-homes, and you had yourself a recipe for glory that many found difficult to resist. But as war scraped on and the supply of meat to the grinder slowed, new avenues of access into the body pool were needed and that favored lever of authority was eventually pulled. Conscription. To all the world, my brother embraced his call to duty and its noble gift therein ensconced, service to a greater good. But I was with him when he received his battle order, and I alone glimpsed the terror that flashed through him just before he regained the reins of his heroic composure. Here was a man conflicted, in love with peace, and obliged to war. As any younger brother or sister can attest, we consider it a sacred mandate of our set to, as near to always as possible, know the goings-on of our older siblings. It was an exercise of this duty that I came to overhear a conversation between my brother and his sweetheart just prior to his departure for combat in dock. They were canoodled on a settee in the den and, to their false belief, alone. I was in the kitchen adjoining, taking advantage of some unique acoustics, the result of an air vent shared between the two rooms. My brother and his lover were engrossed in that timeless recreation enjoyed by all who approached the end of the affair, the exchange of false promises. Bows of immutable love were swapped, singularity of affection confirmed, and assurances of unfading feeling oathed, all of it sincere and none of it true. But it was a soothing fiction for the leaving and the left behind in this time of soon parting. Once fidelity was pledged to the satisfaction of all parties, talk turned from love to an only slightly less serious topic, War of Nations. Are you scared? she queried. Some, he confessed, but nervous and excited too. I'll get to see what's in me, what I'm capable of. There are other ways, you know, she teased with a smiling voice. Not when you're drafted his mirthless reply. They continued to talk, and I to listen, for some time. Affirmations accompanied every rambling topic and served to bolster the confidence and assuage the anxiety of the warrior-to-be. The cause was just, our force superior, victory close at hand, his quick return to her faithful arms imminent, etc. Eventually, talk ascended to silence, and the lovers returned to that country that lovers love most the place of tender strokes and gentle moans. I took my leave at this, with my brother's words still ringing. I'll get to see what's in me, what I'm capable of. He and I spoke only once after he posted to training garrison and before he saw battle. He was two weeks from completing Indoc on a weekend pass when he called me by vidlink from Battle Barracks Alpha, 
his temporary home at the war station in New Kingston, a place affectionately known by recruits as Killville. My breath tripped when I saw him. He was straddling that line, still, but just, between the familiar old and the unrecognizable and unreturnable new. He was stubble-headed and wore an armor of thick-corded muscle over his strapping frame. He was lean as a panther, and though his eyes hadn't yet fully transitioned into those of a predator, it was clear. The change was underway. He spoke with the confidence bordering brashness of the freshly trained to kill. What's up, meat? He ribbed. Good, man, good. How's it going? You look totally ripped. How are they treating you? Three squares and all the rounds you can squeeze off. It's not so bad once you settle in. But still, I can't wait to get to theater and start mowing. Um, yeah, cool. You're done in two weeks, huh? Then what? A cycle of combat jump school, four weeks of improv explosives training, and then I'm off to start making orphans. Um, yeah, cool, cool. You staying safe? Hell no, I'm staying dangerous. And so it went. We spoke a bit more, trying on topics of home, but that world was too far away from him now. Things like friends and girls were but waning memories, and dangerous distraction to a mind needing its full force of focus for what was ahead. Our call ended abruptly, he being lured away by buddies on their way to town, presumably to test drive their new swagger on the lords and ladies of Killville. It was a disorienting call, and there was obvious space between us, compounded by his newfound militancy. I didn't fault him for the distance or for his zeal. Something told me it was the safer way, the only way for him to get himself where he needed to be so he could go do what he was about to do. But still, it was weird. I don't know why, but it gave me a start to learn that my brother was everything I'd always known but had never seen him to be. Track Your Hero transmissions from the fighting zone told the story of a lion among men an angel of death who prowled the front lines, stacking bodies and combat medals as so much cordwood. His kill cam videos went viral and quickly became the stuff of legend amongst battlefield soldiers and basement gamers alike. Both parties were known to borrow his primal gore and glory battle scream anytime hope was fading and pluck was paramount. His first combat scratch came in the form of having his arm blown off by a cluster round while taking a village in Sonora. The live stream showed him leading a charge into a quagmire of smoke, rubble, and gristle. The explosion clouded the screen in a dusty pink mist that, once settled, revealed my brother writhing and screaming, one sleeve too many, before medics could drag him out and whisk him off to the nearest battlefield refiguration outpost. Two hundred hours later, he was back in the fight, the recipient of a new battle prothesis and nearly three pounds of quantum-generated neo-tissue. I didn't even know about the next injury until I saw him in person, home for R&R between his first and second tours. Six weeks prior, a fission grenade relieved him of his left eye and most of that chiseled jaw, nothing that couldn't be replaced and upgraded by military largesse. Takes some getting used to, but once you have it down, the telescoping and night vision modes of the Mod 3 Oculens make you want to dig out your other eye and replace it too. Or so I was told. It was during this four-week respite between deployments that I realized my brother had been killed in action, replaced with a lab-built and war-formed avatar. Combat-hardened muscles apart, he was physically about the same. It's a golden age of reconstructive technology. 
The change was manifest in his manner, and, if you happen to catch him unguarded, in the hollow look of his merely human eye. He spent most of his time during those four weeks by himself, sleeping to mid-afternoon, walking long roads, eating little, drinking much. Never having had a nose for alcohol before, he'd picked up the scent since, and could now put down jugs of just about anything that burned without so much as a stumble or slur. I ached to talk to him about something that mattered, to hear him, to be there for him, to connect if even in the smallest way, like old times. I took his isolation and brooding for regret, for painful memory of the wreckage he'd been forced to create, but I was wrong. He wasn't brooding over the regret of war. He was hungering to return to it. It was about a week before he shipped back to the zone when he came by my room one morning and plunked down on the bed. We hadn't spent the weeks prior reveling in happy memory or running around town getting into hijinks together like I daydreamed we would. Our exchanges had been clipped and superficial, maybe intentionally so, neither of us knowing quite how to handle this new world view he'd been squeezed into. So his raw candor in this moment, apropos of nothing, caught me off guard. It's strange being home, where everything is safe and easy. There's good food, soft beds, everyone's happy to see you. I should want to be here more than I do, but all I can think about is getting back to my buddies, back to the fight. I don't want you to go back. I don't want you to get hurt anymore. You know, it's funny. You get hurt once, and you're scared to get hurt again. You don't want to go through it twice. But after you've been hurt twice, you stop being afraid of it. You develop a kind of shield from the fear. Killing is the same way. It gets easier the more you do it. Then without another word, he rose with his thoughts and left me to mine. With a strange smile and feigned enthusiasm, I wished him well. Off to his second round of war a few days later. This was a much quicker tour. He wasn't three weeks in theater before his platoon wandered into an ambush, and he took a hellacious hit that made a smear of him from the waist down. Even the pre-battle coagulating agent that all soldiers are pumped full of barely kept him alive before he could get to refig. This time, he got a full bionic mobility rig, along with a new set of lower body plumbing. Better than new and fully upgraded with all the best technology available. Compliments of the geniuses that apply their prodigious intellects to the creation of such things. 300 hours post-refig, as he's finishing accelerated restoration, my brother received the devastating news that he would not be returning to the fight. Though arguably the most battle-ready kill machine he'd ever been, given the extent of his aggregate injuries and subsequent reconstruction, he was now 73% neomass. This made him an incarnate violation of the Biomech Prohibition Clause of the Tehran Accords, stating no warfighter could be comprised of greater than 70% non-native components, lest they be considered sentient weaponry, S-dub in war lawyer vernacular. So with little fanfare beyond the pinning on of his third battlefield award for injury and a thanks for playing, my brother was unceremoniously discharged and mailed home, a military-grade weapon, deemed too dangerous for war. I wish this is where the twists of the story came in. The part where after a few months of chopping wood in the mountains, my shirtless and bearded brother looks up to see intelligence officers hover sledding into the meadow where he's working to recruit him for important, top-secret work. 
the kind of work suited only to a combat veteran with a Mod 3 oculens and bionic legs. Super action hero stuff. Movie star excitement aside, I'd gladly settle for this part of the story being about my brother's uneventful return to peaceful quietude. The part where he learns to meditate, grows his hair long, gets a dog, comes to love woodworking, the embrace of a boring and beautiful life. But instead, this is the part of the story where my brother returns home and bumbles aimlessly for months, scrounging just enough focus to increase his drinking tolerance and run off his girlfriend. It's the part of the story where his only outings are to the local war vet watering hole and his wage-slave job as a part-time night watchman at the edge of town scrapyard. In other words, this is the part of the story where I chronicle his sensationless decline. The last conversation we had occurred the night before he wandered to the rail station, hopped a mag train, and slid off over the horizon, accompanied only by his few possessions, which were stuffed into his battered War Force-issued rucksack. We met awkwardly in our parents' hallway, where I was on my way out to meet friends, and he was on his way back from drinking, heading down to the basement for a bad night's sleep on the pull-out sofa. Oh, hey, I said, trying to sound enthused, but only coming across as startled. Hey, his dead reply. He was clearly drunk, fabulously so, and had to lean against the wall to stay upright. How's it going, man? You in for the night? I asked. You know, he said, ignoring my small talk. It's damn lousy to be good at the only thing you can't do. I'm a damn killing machine. Who's going to steal scrap metal? You okay? I asked nervously. He couldn't hear me. There was a family in Hermosillo. His gaze was over my shoulder. They were hiding in the back of a blown-out restaurant. I didn't want to hear this. Parents, three kids, abuela, a dog. He wasn't talking to me. Let me take you downstairs, man. Please. I wasn't even there now. He wasn't either. The dog had to go. It was making too much noise. Please stop. The dad just kept saying, pause, por favor, pause. He was shielding everyone behind him. No. He was making too much noise, too. God, stop him. Then they were all making too much noise. His dry and bloodshot eye never made contact. I was crying, trying to figure out what to say, how to respond to the greatest horror I'd ever heard. But he was already gone stumble-falling down the stairs to the darkened basement below. Our final exchange. I do my best thinking in the morning. I sit on the porch with my breakfast, wax poetic to myself, and sort through my stuff. With a little bit of quiet, seems there's very little I can't figure out in the light of the infant day. As I think now on my brother, I'm even able to marshal him into a loose index. The man he was, the things he took in war the things war took from him, the misfortune shell remaining. Admittedly, I do sometimes hit a wall that can't be gone around, only over or through, like the one in front of me now, my own draft notice, the ordered arms I received last night by digital courier. I can make no sense of the wave hitting me. Punks, 
kiosks, neo-flesh, dogs, battle cries, Killville girlfriends, basements, trains. All of it swarmed in a screaming cloud of pink mist. The noise and chaos of it unstables me, and I beg counsel of the universe. How to summon the strength to answer this call without bursting into a thousand shards. A lonesome and sore-hearted voice echoes back. No one wins a fight. The End This has been another episode of Montana 3000. Check out the website for more information and additional stories. Montana3000.com If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. Until next time, happy trails. Thank <laughs> you.